0: Amen. Uh, well, let me invite you to take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, it may take me a second to calm down so I can, I can preach after that. Uh, that. That line gets me every time. Uh, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, um, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Uh, it is well to my, with my soul. I am glad and thankful that all of my sin, not part of it, not 99.9% of it, but all of it, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more so I can stand before God justified, uh, a child of His, and what a privilege that is. Uh, we've been working our way through First Corinthians And we've been in chapter 15 for three weeks, this will be the fourth week, and we're going to look this morning at verses 29 through 34 as we examine the deep impact the resurrection should have on our lives. Let's begin in verse 29, and hear now the word of Scripture. Paul, picking up in the middle of his argument, says, otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. I don't stick metal objects in wall outlets. I don't drink Clorox, and I don't eat Tide Pods, and I don't step in front of oncoming trains or semi-trucks. Reason? I don't <laughs> stick metal objects in walls because I believe it will shock me. I don't eat Tide Pods and Clorox because I don't think much about eating and drinking poison, and I know that I am no match for an oncoming train or semi, so I don't step out in front of them. My behavior is influenced by my beliefs. What I know changes the way I behave. And if my beliefs impact my behavior when it comes to my health, my life, and my well-being. How much more should my spiritual life be affected by what I believe? How much more should my behavior be influenced by the truths that I hold dear to my heart? How should the way I practice be influenced by my profession? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul has thus far been dealing with the most important Belief that Christians hold true, and that is the resurrection from the dead. He begins this chapter with a theological argument that if you say there is no resurrection from the dead, as some in Corinth were saying, then theologically the gospel crumbles because at the very heart of the gospel is the truth that Jesus Christ, a man, Died on a Roman cross. He was buried. And three days later, that man was resurrected from the dead, raised to life, never to die again. Thus, if the dead are not raised, Paul says, then Christ is not raised, and we are to be of all people most pitied. But not only is there theological ramifications, Paul in this chapter tells us that there are eschatological ramifications. That just is a fancy word that deals with end time ramifications. That because there is a resurrection, those who live in a world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be can look forward to a day when things will be the way they're supposed to be. When Christ returns and he raises his people from the dead and he delivers the kingdom up to the Father, becoming subject to the Father, then things will be as God intended for them to be. Death will be no more. Peace will abound forever. And we will live under the perfect rule and reign of God just as God intended throughout all eternity. That's what we've got to look forward to. But... In between or after his theological ramifications of the resurrection and describing the eschatological ramifications of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul, in these verses, gives us the practical ramifications of the resurrection, the practical impact of the resurrection. He shows us how a future hope in the resurrection impacts the way Christians live their lives today. He shows us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only affects our tomorrow, but it impacts our today. That the resurrection is not just a doctrine that we hold dearly as we hope for the sweet by and by. But the resurrection is a doctrine that we hope dearly because it impacts the ugly now and now. It is not just a doctrine for someday in the future. But the resurrection is a doctrine for every day in The present. So, the question before us today in this text is How should the promise of a future resurrection impact the way you live your life on a daily basis? So, here's what Paul's going to do in this text He's going to give us three ways that the resurrection has practical, present influence on our lives. And he's going to show us the deep impact that the resurrection has. In the lives we live and the practices that uh, that we perform. And he's going to show us that the resurrection isn't just some theological doctrine that we hold true. But it is a practical doctrine that impacts our lives. And in verse 29, Paul begins with his reasons. And he shows us here that the resurrection matters. First, because it produces consistency in our practices. Now... If you haven't read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a while, whenever I read verses 29 and third, or verse 29, your antenna probably stood up whenever I read this, and you're probably wondering, what in the world is Paul talking about? But here's one thing Paul wants us to see, that without the resurrection from the dead, some of the things we practice make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Look in verse 29. Paul says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? The dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? What in the world is Paul speaking about here? Well, before I get into what I want you, before I get into telling you what I think the verse means, here's something you have to keep in mind. You have to understand the context of who it is Paul is writing to. Now, understand that in Corinth at the time, there is a group of people who are denying, who is denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, denying the resurrection in general. In fact, Paul in verse 12 says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, watch this, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So in Corinth, there was some who were promoting a heresy that said there's no resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in the resurrection. At the same time, this specific group of people seemed to be practicing something that would make absolutely no sense if they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Now, what were they practicing? Well, the specific act was they were baptizing people proxy for people who had already died. Now, that presents a problem uh, because immediately people start asking questions. One, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Two, uh, are the Mormons correct? Because the Mormons use this verse as proof that you can be baptized in proxy of a dead loved one and that dead loved one who died without knowing Christ could then be welcomed into heaven based on the proxy baptism of that that loved one. And then some people might ask, if Paul's saying this, can I be baptized in place of my great-grandmother who passed away before I was ever born? And as far as I know, she, she wasn't a believer, and can she get to heaven based on my baptism? What in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, without a doubt, this is probably the most controversial verse that the Apostle Paul ever penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This week, uh, here's what I found. There are over 200, 200 different interpretations of this verse. I thought about having a 200-point sermon and just giving you all the interpretations and saying, go figure it out on your own. That would have been the easiest point, Uh, but uh, I didn't have space on the bulletin, Uh, but But here's the thing. I've got my own opinion on this and I'm going to share it with you. But just because there are so many brilliant minds who have so many different views of this verse, it should cause all of us to approach this verse with great humility. It would be the height of arrogance for me to stand here this morning and say I'm going to silence all the controversy of 2,000 years of church history and give you the exact answer to this passage of scripture. And the reason I can't One reason is because Paul doesn't elaborate on it. Paul just mentions this and he goes on. Now, here's what I think Paul is saying. I think Paul is addressing the people in Corinth who were denying the resurrection from the dead. One of the reasons I believe that is because Paul speaks to them in the third person. He's speaking to a group of people in the third person plural and he's saying you. How say some of you that there is no resurrection from the dead? After he speaks to that group in the third person, he moves in verse thirty to speaking uh, in the second person plural, we. Then the first person singular, I. And he he, he does this, I think, deliberately, because in verse twenty nine, as he's speaking in the third person plural, he's saying this to this group of people: those among you who say that there is no resurrection from the dead, you are practicing something baptizing believers or baptizing people on behalf of the dead that absolutely contradicts what you say you believe. And Paul is saying your behavior, baptizing people on behalf of the dead, is not consistent with your belief that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, I do not think that Paul is condoning Proxy baptism in the place of the dead because there is no evidence in church history anywhere that the church practiced this. Paul doesn't mention it anywhere else in Scripture. And when the Lord speaks of baptism, it is those who believe who are then baptized. And, uh, you know, I can't, baptize, I, can't, I can't be saved proxy for anyone else, so I cannot be baptized in the place of anyone else. But what Paul is doing by mentioning this is he is merely illustrating the consistency between their profession and their practice. Here's what John Piper said about it. He said one of the arguments he uses against those who were opposing the doctrine of the physical resurrection of the believer from the dead is their apparent inconsistency between on the one hand denying the resurrection and on the other hand being baptized for the dead. He goes on to say that verse 29 is no statement that Paul agrees with what they're doing He's simply pointing out the inconsistency of claiming not to believe in the resurrection and then trying to be baptized. That's the way he uses it. Being baptized for the dead. I hope that's as clear as mud. Uh, And I would agree with what Piper says about this. But the point of the passage, it's not really to debate the specifics of what this group is practicing, but it's to see the big picture of what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, What you practice is not consistent with your profession. And so for us as believers in Christ, we have to stop, think about ourselves, think about our lives, think about outworkings of the resurrection. And there are some things in our life that probably might not make sense if you lay it down and you compare it to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. I get this asked this question all the time. Just one practical outworking of the resurrection when it comes to something we're all familiar with. One of the questions I always get asked is this. Should a Christian be buried or should they be cremated? That's one of the questions I always get asked. Uh, now, you can't go to the scripture and find thou shalt not be cremated or thou shalt be buried. But I think a belief, a true belief in the resurrection, not just of Jesus from the dead, But a belief in the resurrection of believers being raised from the dead as well would say that a belief in the resurrection lends us to support burial over cremation. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, One is that the Bible attaches a significant dignity to the body. What does the Bible call our body? The temple of the Holy Spirit of God. In whose image are we made? I know we're in the image of Adam, but Adam's body was made in whose image? The image of God. And there's a dignity attached to our bodies. But do you know what Paul likens our bodies to at the moment of death and burial? Paul likens our old body to a seed being planted in the ground. Our old body is like a seed being planted in the ground. And when an old seed is planted in the ground and it dies... What happens in that spot? Life springs forth from that spot. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 22 through 44, four times, Paul, speaking about burial and the body, says that it is sown. The body is sown. He says it's, what is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. What is sown in honor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. So what is he saying here? He is saying that when a believer dies and their body is buried, there is something beautiful about the burial. Now listen, I've been all over cemeteries, all over these Appalachian Mountains, And I've been at that spot and I've watched the casket lowered six feet beneath the ground. I've heard the steel vault click. I've I've, I've been there as they covered them up with dirt, walked off the hill, and, and your heart breaks. But if that's a believer going in the ground, there is something glorious about that. There is something beautiful about that. There is something hopeful about that. What we have done is we have planted a seed in resurrection sod. And from that place, new life will spring forward to everlasting life on the last day when the trumpet is sounded. So believers, even after they die, even when they breathe their last, the act of placing them in the ground is a proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that says, this dead seed has been planted, but from this very spot, there is going to come forward life forever. That is consistent with the resurrection and a belief in the resurrection from the dead. So I walk people through that scenario and leave that choice between which one up to, to them, But we have to be careful. We have to be sure, I should say, that our practices are consistent with the belief in the resurrection. There were some in Corinth that it was not. And Paul's calling them out on it. So the resurrection matters because it produces consistency in our practices. Secondly, the resurrection matters because it provides stability in our trials. Verse 30 through 32. After pointing out the inconsistency with the first group who professed to believe in the resurrection or professed not to believe in the resurrection but practiced as if they did, Paul now gets very personal. He changes from the third person singular and he starts talking in the first person plural and the first person singular in verses 30 through verse 32. And he focuses basically on his daily trials. The problems that he faces on a daily basis. And here's what he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but also of his followers, is an anchor that holds believers whenever they face trials in life. That it's not just some theological debate. That it's not just some belief we hold to. But that it anchors us and it holds us Whenever we face trials, Paul's going to show us two ways. He's going to show us that the resurrection, first of all, anchors us in the midst of our difficulties. Look in verse 30. He asks the question, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts of Ephesus? What's he speaking of here? Well, Paul says, listen, my life on an hourly basis, I face danger. Every hour I'm in danger. Why would I face that if there is no resurrection? I mean, I've even fought with the beast of Ephesus. Now, there are some who debate whether he's talking about animals here, and he's been thrown into (laughs) uh, uh, the Colosseum to fight with some animals and beasts. I don't think he's talking about that. Uh, I think he's speaking metaphorically here of the people of Ephesus because if you have read the book of Acts, you know what happened in Acts 19. Paul goes through Ephesus preaching the gospel and as people are saved and converted, there is a silversmith who makes his money by by making false gods, by making idols out of silver. And when people start believing the gospel, guess what happens to his business? It dries up like a tumbleweed and he quits making money. So Demetrius decides he's going to cause a a, a riot in Ephesus and that's exactly what he does. He gets other people together and they come to Paul and he creates a a city-wide riot in Ephesus. So Paul is saying this, why in the world would I preach a gospel that is going to endanger my life day after day after day if there is no resurrection from the dead? It would make absolutely no sense. And so too it is with us. What is it that anchors us in the midst of sorrow? What anchors us in the midst of financial calamity? What should anchor us in the midst of discouragement, physical pain, mental stress, and at times a very weak faith? What should anchor us? The hope of the resurrection of the dead. Wouldn't it be great if we had an example of someone who had endured all of those things and yet was anchored by the resurrection? I mean, think about it. What if someone had extreme sorrow? Let's say he had 10 children and all 10 children died in one day. Let's say there was someone who had so much money you couldn't count it all and his financial advisor comes to him and tells him in a matter of a few hours he's lost every bit of it. Matter of fact, his enemy stole it all. What if there was someone who wanted to Have encouragement, but all he had was three friends who told him he had sinned and caused it, and even a wife who told him to curse God and die. What if there was someone who was in such physical pain that he had boils from the top of his head to the crowns of his feet and he could not have one moment's relief? What if there was a man who was under such mental stress that he even cursed God, cursed the day that he was born? And then what if there was someone who had such weak faith that he looked up into heaven and said, Why in the world have you made me like this? Oh, we have an example of someone like that in the Bible, don't we? A man by the name of Job. And do you know what anchored Job in the midst of it all? In the midst of it all, Job looks up into heaven. And in Job 14, he says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. That you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again. All the days of my service, I would wait until my renewal should come. Job says, here is my hope that there is coming a day when I will be renewed, nude. So just put me in the grave and I'll wait for that day when you will call and I will answer you. Later in Job chapter 19, at another low point in his life, he will say this, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last day he shall stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and not another. And my eyes shall behold. whole. my heart faints within me, he says. What should anchor a believer in this life? It is the assurance of knowing this life is not the end. There is something beyond this. Paul says there is to be gain. What would I gain if I go through all of these difficulties? And there is no resurrection, Paul would say. And yet, because he knew there was a resurrection, Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, what things were counted gain to me, those I count but dung. I count everything as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of law, but the righteousness which is of faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes to us by faith. Paul says, oh, I want to know him and the power of resurrection. Paul says, I want to know that, what that is going to be like. So what do I do? I press for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, what motivates me, what pushes me, what holds me, what anchors me is the fact of knowing this world is not it. There is a resurrection and I long for that day. So what are your difficulties today? Do you have family problems? Do you have health issues? Are you stressed? Are you full of sorrow? Do you have anguish in your soul? Beloved, the hope is found in an empty tomb and in an empty grave. Christ and yours. Look to those. Hope in those and allow those to anchor you because they remind us This world is not our home. We're just passing through. So in the midst of your difficulties, the resurrection should anchor you. But it not only anchors us in the midst of difficulties, the resurrection anchors us in the face of death. Look what Paul says. He says, I die every day at the end of verse 31. Paul says, I wake up every morning, know that I'm marked for death. And today could be my last one. And I wake up every day facing death that it could possibly, probably come to me. You know, everybody here thinks, everybody here knows that we're going to die. But everybody here thinks you're going to die tomorrow. It's not going to happen today. No, I'm going to die. I'm just not going to die today. I'm going to die somewhere off into the future. But yet, Paul says, for a believer, we face death, everybody faces death, second by second by second. And what is it that anchors us? How is it that we have even walking around since when we think about that? It's the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's what Paul's saying. Because there is a resurrection, And there will be a resurrection. I don't have to live my life with self-preservation as my number one objective. If I give my life for the cause of the gospel, so be it. I'll just keep living in glory and not maybe here on the earth. Can I just tell you something? There is a peace and a stability that God gives his people in the face of death that cannot be described With human words. If you trust Jesus and you've never had a moment where you thought you were gonna die, you don't know what you're missing. (laughs) And you think I'm crazy, but I'm 100% serious. I've told it before, but I was wearing a heart monitor on January 15th, 2015, and my monitor went off, it dinged, my face got a little flush. Got a little light-headed, and my phone rang, and it was Dr. Lamai. And I answered the phone, and he said, uh, Justin, uh, have you passed out? And I'm thinking, you're, you're my doctor, all right? You're a smart guy. I answered the phone. <laughs> passed out, people don't answer phones. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. And he said, did you pass out? And I said, no. He said, well, you should have. He said, your heart was in asystole for uh, three and a half seconds. And I said, well, what does that mean? Uh, he said, uh, you flatlined. There was no electrical activity in your heart whatsoever for three and a half seconds. And uh, I said, uh, well, I did get a little flush. I got a little lightheaded, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm okay. And uh, I said, uh, he said, well, here's the deal. You have to get here immediately, as fast as you can. Can you go to the hospital and have them bring you an ambulance? And I said, you know, if I go to the hospital and they transfer me in the ambulance, I'll be lucky to get there in 12 hours probably. So, so... Um, I'll just take my chance. shelley will drive me. And he said, well, come as fast as you can. And, and before I got off the phone with him, I said, uh, Dr. Lamai, i got one question for you before we leave. And he said, what? I said, why did my heart start back? I mean, my heart quit for three and a half seconds. Why did it start back? And he said, Justin, it was just the grace of God. Get here now. So I hung up the phone, made the calls, we jumped in the car, drove to Lexington. Shelly drove. And the entire time I drove to Lexington, I did not know if my next heartbeat would be my last. I didn't know it. Now, why I prayed for my children and I prayed for Shelly and, and I, I, I prayed for good results, I cannot describe, and I have not experienced anything like that since that moment, of a peace that passes All understanding. I can't explain it. But here's all I know. I knew driving down the mountain parkway and getting on 75. That if that was it for me in this world. That wasn't it for me. I knew. That because there's an empty tomb. I knew that because Jesus was resurrected. That I would be resurrected. That this was not the end for me. There is no peace in the world like that. There is nothing that the world can give you that can give you a peace that passes all understanding like that. And, and what that does, that lets me know that when I face death, there's no terror. There's nothing to fear because Christ has conquered death. It is a defeated foe. And Therefore, beloved, Death, in some ways, while it is the ultimate enemy, is also a believer's best friend (laughs) because it ushers us into the presence of Christ. A missionary was going to, I forget his name, but he was going to the cannibals, and they said, you will die, and he said, you cannot threaten me with heaven. (laughs) It doesn't work. How is it that we can have that attitude? It's because the resurrection lets us know that even though we face death every hour, that it is a defeated foe, and we too will conquer it. And let me say this. Sometimes I think when we think about death as believers, we sometimes forget about the body aspect of it. Now, Scripture doesn't teach soul sleep, that whenever you die, you sleep. But the reason the Bible mentions sleep is because that's what your body looks like it's doing. It looks like it's resting. It looks like it's sleeping. And when we die immediately, our soul goes into the presence of God and we rejoice in His presence. But don't forget about our bodies. Our bodies (laughs) is who we are. And the Bible promises that there's going to be a resurrection and a reunion with our bodies and our souls. And we will have a real body throughout all of eternity. And thus while when I die, My soul goes to the presence of God. My body's going to be buried. There is going to be a resurrection of my body as well. That's what Paul is saying here. Yes, we're going to die, but we're going to be resurrected. But because there is a resurrection, it provides stability in the midst of our trials. You can endure anything for a little bit because you've got an eternity to enjoy Christ and enjoy God. And then thirdly, the resurrection matters because it promotes purity in our lives. This is where the rubber meets the road. Paul goes from the theological in verse 29 to the personal in verse 30 through 32. And he sums it up with the practical in verse 33 through verse 34. And he wants us to see something. That evidence that you believe that there is going to be a resurrection, it is not simply in setting dates on a calendar for when Jesus is going to return. It's not about arguing over whether you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib, all those eschatological views. You can argue them till they're blue in the face and still not prove that you believe in the resurrection. Here's what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to see that evidence we believe that the resurrection is a fact, a promise, the evidence is seen in our lives as we live as a people who live in light of the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body. Now, Paul gives here three commands for the Corinthians, and he he, he seeks to jar them, and his motivation is the resurrection's coming, so you better respond. If you believe it's coming, then you need to do these things. The first thing is, he says, watch out, because association leads to corruption. Look at verse 33. Let us not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What's he saying here? Paul's saying, you believe there's a resurrection coming? Then, then there's some people in your midst that you probably ought not hang around and you probably ought not associate with. Now, again, who's he speaking of here? Well, in Corinth, some false teachers had come in and started spreading heresy. There is no resurrection from the dead. Paul says, withdraw from those people. Don't listen to those people. Because what happens is you hang around those people. You listen to those people. Before long, you'll start believing those people, and you'll start living like those people. And Paul says, do not do it. You know, I say this oftentimes to young people. And, and, and teachers will tell, tell teenagers, and parents tell teenagers and everything else, you have to be careful who you run with. Um, I was making a phone call in my office for uh, someone. It's been... 15 years ago, I would say, uh, in an attempt to get them into a, a faith-based uh, drug rehabilitation center, and I, I called and I talked to the president there and was telling them about the person I was trying to get, get them in, and, and, and of course, there's a bit of flattery you want them to think you're getting, you know, it, it, I said, this is just a real good person, uh, my theology was different back then, I said, this is just a, a, a real good person, and you know, they just, just got messed up and got mixed up with the wrong crowd, and they ended up... You know, they're on drugs now, and they need help. And he said, would you mind if I just kind of say something to you without offending you? And I said, well, sure. He said, if you're calling me about this individual, he said, you're calling me not because they got mixed up in the wrong crowd. You're calling me because they now are the wrong crowd. I said, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Because isn't that the way it starts off? You're attracted to the wrong crowd. You hang with the wrong crowd. You listen to the wrong crowd. You act like the wrong crowd. Before long, you become the wrong crowd. Now listen, the church should be the people who reaches out to the wrong crowd, who loves the wrong, cra- wrong crowd, who, who shares the gospel with the wrong crowd, who, who shows the love of Christ to everyone, especially the sinful, because we're all sinners, But still yet, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, in particular to the heretics that were among them, you'd best withdraw from them. Do you know why Scripture over and over and over and over and over again tells us that when it comes to false doctrine and it comes to false teachers, that you don't even even listen to them? The reason is because their heresy will lead to your corruption. Bad company ruins good morals. And, and so Paul says, you watch out. Association leads to corruption. But then he says, wake up. Slumber leads to sin. Verse 34, Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is writing. Do not go on sinning. Do you know what the Corinthians were acting like? They were acting like a slobbering Drunk who couldn't walk a straight line, who didn't know the right hand from their left hand, who couldn't speak right, and and, uh, whose mechanical skills were all messed up, and they just didn't know what in the world was going on. Spiritually, that's the way the Corinthians were acting. And it was proof in their life. What's going on in Corinth? Just a little bit of a review. There are divisions in the church. The haves are looking down at the have-nots. The have-nots are envious of the haves. They're fighting over who's got the best spiritual gift. Pride has gripped their hearts. And if it wasn't just pride and envy going on, you got one guy who's having an affair with his dad's wife and the church is loving them up, okay with it, proud that they're so tolerant. And then in their midst, uh, you've got people who are holier than thou, They won't eat meat that's been offered to idols because they are just too spiritual to do something like that. And Paul is saying, You look at what's going on. You got arrogance. You got pride. You got sexual sin. You got drunkenness. They're getting stone blind drunk at the Lord's Supper. They weren't just taking little sips in the cup, they were drinking a bottle. They're glutton. There's hate going on. There's division going on. And Paul says, Wake up. Look what's going on. You believe there's a resurrection? Well, you'd better sober up quickly because it's approaching, it's coming. I mean, you know, there's, there's just something about someone showing up at your door, getting a phone call, something like that when you're not expecting it, that, that, that for better lack of a term, sobers you up quick or, or wakes you up quick. You know, I think it was last Sunday, Brian called me on Sunday to ask me if we were going to play basketball. Um, and i 've repented for my lie since that day, uh, but I, I, honestly, I was ignorant of it when I said it. I was in a dead sleep, and he calls and wakes me up, and, you know, I do that. <clears throat> and, hello." And he says, you 're asleep, ain't you?" And what 's the first thing you do? You lie like, a, like the devil." I was like, <clears throat> no, i 'm not asleep. I even tried to do my preacher voice, and it, it just didn 't work. Well what happened? Well, the phone call startled me, and it woke me up. And Paul's attempting to do the same thing with the Corinthians here. He said, hey, wake up. Get out of your slumber. Get out of your sleep. Don't go on sinning. Stop it because there's a resurrection coming. And Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening to the coming of the day of God. He's saying our motivation for holy living is that God is coming and the resurrection is coming. And so, beloved, the resurrection's coming. So, wake up. Slumber leads to sin. And then he says, wise up. Ignorance leads to immorality. Now, look what he says here at the end For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, this is interesting because you know what some of the Corinthians were doing in their midst? They were boasting about their knowledge. Those who wouldn't eat meat offered to idols boasted of their superior knowledge to those who would. And, And those who had superior spiritual gifts boasted of their knowledge to others. And here's what Paul's saying. With all the sin and all the junk that's going on in your midst, you prove something. You are ignorant of God which shows me bad theology leads to immorality. You hear people say all the time, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. It does matter what you believe because what you believe affects your behavior. And here, Paul basically saying this, those of you who believe in the resurrection know better. You should be leading those who don't believe in the resurrection into the true knowledge of God but you're allowing heresy and immorality to mislead you. How sad is that? Here's what Paul wants us to know, to see, to believe about the resurrection. That it's not just some pie in the sky fairy tale that we hold some happily ever after. But it's something that allows us to face heartache, difficulty, death. Death. With hope, with assurance, with steadfastness that the world cannot understand. John and Betty Stamm, they both attended Moody Bible Institute where they fell in love. And both of them felt God's calling on their life to take the gospel to China. And so in 1931, Betty left for China. One year later, John followed. And they were married on October 25th, 1933. Uh, they started work on a family quickly. In September of 1934, a daughter was born to them, a little girl her name was Helen Priscilla. But soon things turned bad in China. And the Chinese Communist Civil War spread rapidly throughout the region, and in 1934, this article uh, ran in a newspaper in America that described what occurred. He said, and I quote, Betty was bathing three-month-old Helen when Singta's city magistrate appeared. Communist forces were near, he warned, and urged the Stams to flee. But before the Stams could make their break, the communists were inside the city. Communist bandits quickly came, pounding at their door. John opened it, spoke courteously to the four leaders who entered, and he asked them if they were hungry. Betty brought them tea and cakes. The courtesy, however, meant nothing. They demanded all the money that the Stamps had, and John willingly handed it over. John was then bound and led away. Before long, the bandits reappeared, this time taking Betty and Helen. That night, John was allowed to write a letter to mission authorities. Here's what he said. My wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Singtah. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. The Lord bless and guide you. As for us, may God be glorified whether by life or by death. The letter wasn't received until months later. Prisoners in the local jail were released to make room for the Stams. At one point, frightened by the rifle fire, little Helen began to cry. One of the communist rebels said, let's kill the baby. It's in our way. Why kill her? What harm has she done? Are are you a Christian? shouted one of the guards. The man said he was not, but that he was one of the prisoners who had just been released to make room for the Stams. Will you die for this foreign baby, they asked. And as Betty hugged Helen to her chest, the man was hacked to pieces before their eyes. The next morning, their captors led the Stams toward Mioche on a 12-mile march. Under guard, the entire Stams family was taken to a postmaster's office. Where are you going, the postmaster asked, who had recognized them from previous visits to town. We don't know where they're going but we're going to heaven, answered John. That night, the three were held in the house of a wealthy man who had fled. They were carefully guarded by soldiers, and John was tied to a post all that cold night. But Betty was allowed enough freedom to tend to the baby. As it turned out, she did more than that. The next morning, the young couple was led through town without the baby. She had arranged for someone else to take the baby and to hide it in secret. Their hands were tightly bound. They were stripped of their outer garments as if they were common criminals. John walked barefoot. He had given his socks to Betty. The soldiers jeered and called the town's folks to come and see the execution. The terrified people obeyed. And on the way to the execution, a medicine seller, a one considered a lukewarm Christian at best stepped from the crowd and pleaded for the lives of the two foreigners. And The communist bandits angrily ordered him back. The man, however, would not be quiet. His house was searched, a Bible and hymn book were found, and he also was dragged away to be executed as a hated and despised Christian. John pleaded for the man's life. The bandits leader sharply ordered him to kneel. And as John's was speaking softly the communist leader swung his sword through the missionary's throat so that his head was severed from his body Betty did not scream she quivered and fell down beside her husband's body and as she knelt there the same sword that ended his life ended hers with a single blow shortly before his death John wrote his father Telling him of the growing dangers they faced in China. And in the letter, he copied the following words, which expressed his and Betty's approach to the constant daily threat of persecution and ultimate death. Here's what he wrote Afraid? Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid. Of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart? Darkness, light, oh, heaven's art. A wound of his counterpart? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptized with blood, a stony plot. Till souls shall blossom. Blossom. From the spot. Afraid of that? That last line sink in. Till souls shall blossom from the spot. What is he saying? He's saying this. What the world says is the worst thing that could happen to me and my wife is for us to die. here's what death is for us and you're asking me to be afraid of that no way how can they look at death how could they look at it in 1934 and as the communists swing their sword an instrument of death sends them out into eternity how could they do it with such confidence do you know how they believed 2,000 years ago that a Savior had died he was buried and he was raised again and their story will be their Savior's story repeated dead? yes buried? yes but one day raised in eternal life forever and ever and ever till souls shall blossom From that spot. Here's my question to you. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe the gospel? Are you going through difficulties this morning? And you've looked for answers and a hope and an anchor? Well, beloved, grab hold of the resurrection. Cling to the resurrection. Hold to the resurrection. In fact, let it hold you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, do you know it's impossible for you to be saved apart from believing in the resurrection? Scripture says you believe in your heart that Jesus died and that he was raised from the dead and you confess him as your Lord and as your Savior. And I ask you, have you done that? Have you confessed and professed? publicly that you believe Jesus died that he was buried and that he was raised again and that you've repented of your sin and you've placed your faith and your trust in him you say well I believe it but I've not done it no you haven't no you haven't because you know why Paul says we believe and therefore we speak belief in the resurrection produces confession of the resurrection and so if you believe it and you've never confessed you've never professed Christ as your Lord and Savior today, I encourage you to do so. To prepare today for the promised future resurrection. To be with God forever. Let's pray.